interested in learning about wine, but not sure where to start? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Cork and Fizz Guide to Wine podcast. I'm your host, Haley Bullman, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm a wine enthusiast turned wine educator and founder of the Seattle-based wine tasting business, Cork and Fizz. It is my goal to build your confidence in wine by making it approachable and lots of fun. You can expect to learn everything from how to describe your favorite wine to what to pair with dinner tonight and so much more. Whether you're a casual wine sipper or a total cork dork like myself, this podcast is for you. So grab yourself a glass and let's dive in. So we had two episodes dedicated to an overview of French wine. Now I think it's time to learn about another country's wine. Why not Spain? Spain has some of the most budget-friendly, age-worthy wines, and you should definitely be drinking Spanish wine if you aren't already. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder, if you are not on my mailing list, I would love for you to join. When you do, you will get a free shopping guide. It has 15 of my favorite wines under $15. Simply head to corkandfizz.com, scroll down to the bottom, and there'll be a little section where you can join the mailing list. I send out a weekly newsletter filled with wine tips, recommendations, special offers, and so much more. All right, let's get into the episode. As always, we want to start off with some basics. So in terms of wine production, Spain is the third largest producer of wine. They have the largest land area dedicated to vineyards, though, which is kind of crazy whenever I put this question up on Instagram or I think I had it in trivia once. It seems to make sense that the U.S. would have so much more, but just because the U.S. is larger does not mean they have more land dedicated to vineyards. So in Spain, they have about 2.4 million acres of vineyards. They are the second biggest wine exporter behind Italy, so meaning they send out a lot of their wine. In 2021, they exported $3.53 billion in wine. However, they are not as big, which kind of makes sense here, on consumption per capita. So they are the 14th country when you think about consumption per capita, which makes sense because they export a lot of their wines. There are... About 235 unique grape varieties. We are not going to go through all 235 of those. But more importantly than the grapes, of course, are the wine regions. Now, there are over 138 official wine designations in Spain, so we're also not going to go over every single wine region. Instead, I'm going to teach you about some of the most popular and or some of my favorite wine regions. So there are going to be five in this podcast. We are going to learn about Rioja Baixas, Bierzo, Rioja, Ribera del Duero, and Priorat. And again, I'm happy to do a part two if you want to learn about more Spanish wine regions or do a deep dive into any of these regions as a podcast on their own. Just send me an email, Haley at corkandfizz.com, or find me on Instagram at corkandfizz, and let me know what country or regions you want to learn about. Now, before we dive into the regions, super quick, I want to go over reading labels. So again, just like French wine, some Spanish wines are labeled by region, and this region tells you what to expect in the wine. So remember, unlike in the U.S. where you can grow anything, anywhere, you could grow, you know, in Napa Valley, you can grow Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, anything you want. You could grow some weird grape out of Italy that no one's ever heard of. And you could still put Napa Valley on the label as long as the grapevines were from Napa Valley. In Spain, 
Just like in France, you can't do that. Each region has a set of rules that dictate what grapes are inside that bottle. So even if you grew the grapes in the region, that is not enough to be able to put the region on the label. So when you look at a label, one of the first things you should pay attention to is the name of the region where the wine is from because those rules might be strict, but they also help you know what's in the bottle. So I'll be spending a lot of time in today's podcast going over the major wine grapes that are in each of these wine regions that we talk about. One thing I will say, in Spain, there are more wines labeled by grape than in France. And some are actually labeled using both the region and the grape, which in my opinion, I think is the most helpful and all places should start doing that. (laughs) But yeah, so keep an eye out for that. Like I said, there will be some labeled by region, but you might find more labeled by grape variety. And finally, let's go over the Spanish wine classification system. This might sound a little boring and like, oh, classification system, Haley, skip to the next part. Uh, I don't mind if you do, but I also think this is kind of helpful for helping you learn what types of wine that you want to buy, and you'll start to recognize these things on the label. That's why I share it. So the Spanish wine classification system has three tiers. So you have at the very top is DOP. This is Denominación de Origen Protegida. This is the highest quality tier of Spanish wine, and it is further divided into three subclassifications. So you have the Vino de Pajo. This is VP. These are single vineyard wines. There are only 15 VPs in all of Spain. So next up is DOCA or DOQ. This is Denominación de Origen Calificado. This is a more rigorous quality standard that require wineries not just vineyards, to be located within the region. So you can't just get grapes from one place and then make them somewhere else and put the name of this DOCA on the bottle. You have to get the grapes from that region and have your winery in that region. The only two that exist for DOCA or DOQ are Rioja and Priorat. And then finally, you have the DO. This is the most common classification. This is Denominación de Origen. These are just quality wines made in one of the 79 official regions. All right, so we had, that was Denominación de Origen Protegida, DOP. And so you're looking for either VP on the bottle, Vino de Pago, DOCA or DOQ, Denominación de Origen Calificado, or DO, Denominación de Origen. The next tier down, so that was tier one. The next tier down is IGP, which is Indicación Geográfica Protegida. These are wines from larger regional zones with slightly lower requirements than a DOP. There are about 46 of these. And then finally, at the very bottom, there's vino. This is just table wine. Many of these are labeled tinto, like vino tinto or vino blanco. I ordered a lot of these when I was studying abroad in Spain uh, during my, what, junior year of college. These are going to be your super affordable, oftentimes blends or just, you know, just a good table wine that they serve at the restaurant or, you know, you can have a table wine at home as well. All right, let's dive into each of those five regions. We're going to start with Rias Baixas. The first two regions that I go over, so Rias Baixas and Bierzo, are located in northwest Spain, which is a region that is a whole lot cooler and a whole lot greener than the rest of Spain. And by green, I mean like literally when you look out the window when you're driving, you will see way more green in this region. So specifically, the Rias Baixas is located just north of Portugal in a region known as Galicia. Rias Baixas is Galician for lower rivers, and there are four main rivers, Moros y Noya, 
that's just one. I know it sounds like I said two. Morosinoia, Arauso, Pontevedra, and Vigo. The most popular wine made in Rias Baixas is Albariño. You can also find two other less common white grapes called Loreria and Fexadura. As you can tell, those are a little harder to pronounce because I have not seen those as often. But both of those are minor grapes that are sometimes blended with Albariño. I think you'd have a hard time finding those like 100% single varietals on your own. So typically think Rias Baixas, Albariño. Albariño is a refreshing, crisp wine that pairs well with seafood. And seafood is one of the main food groups in Galicia. It's like a Sauvignon Blanc, but less herbaceous and more salty. Like I always say, it smells like the ocean and it grows right by the ocean. Historically, wines made from Albariño were never really more than humble quaffs. So think like porch pounders that we would call them today. The people of Galicia who are making these albariños, they were known as gallegos, and they were and they still are primarily provincial poor fishermen. They didn't have a lot of money to spend on their winemaking, and they typically drank all the wine that they made, so there was no commercial need to improve it. The gallegos were hardworking, rural people of Celtic origin who, until recently, were geographically isolated from the rest of the country. And you can kind of tell this, like, if you ever travel through Spain and then you head northwest, it just it just feels like you've moved into a different region. So like the Basques and the Catalans of Spain, the people in Galicia, the Gallegos, have their own language. It's a Celtic-sounding quasi-marriage of Spanish and Portuguese. And as someone who used to understand Spanish pretty well, I had a very hard time understanding Galician uh, when I visited there. It just it just sounds very different. It is their own unique language. So again, they were using tools over a century old, even as late as the 1980s. But those albariños started to come to prominence in the 1990s. This was driven by an emerging class of wealthy, well-educated Gallegos who purchased wineries, added modern technology like temperature-controlled stainless steel tanks, and they hired young, well-trained enologists. They went from five commercial wineries in 1986, so I don't think it was that long ago. God, I guess it was close to 40 years ago, but still, that's not that long ago. <laughs> they went from five commercial wineries to just over 180 bodegas in 2011, and I couldn't find a more updated stat, but I bet you it is even higher than that now. The region of Rios Baixas is about 9,000 acres large and can be broken down even further into five non-continuous subregions. So I'm just going to share these because I think it's kind of fun. I think we tend to, you will typically only see Rios Baixas on the label. And then again, if it's a white wine, and I think it should, I think it's only ever a white wine from Rios Baixas, but please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I looked it up and looked like that was it. If it's Rios Baixas labeled, it is most definitely an Albariño, and it will likely also say Albariño on it. But just in case you're curious to dive a little deeper, and maybe you can ask your local wine shop if they know any more information about any of the Albariños that they have. So here are the five subregions within Rias Baixas. You have Riberia de Ula. Uh, this is the newest and most northerly subregion. It's an inland area with fruitier wines because they have a more moderated weather. They're not right on the coast next to the ocean. Then you have Val Los Alnes. Spanish winemakers credit this as the birthplace of Albariño, though the people of Portugal may argue with that. They think Albariño, which they call Alvariño, 
came from Portugal. But this region, the Val do Salnes, this region skirts the coast and produces wines with really intense minerality and salinity. It's definitely where I love my wines from. Next up, you have Sotomayor. This is the smallest of the five growing areas on a river estuary. And again, it's on the water. You're going to have more salinity. You're going to have mineral-driven wines. Then you have Condado do Tea. This is named after the river Tea. This region is the furthest inland. So similar to that first one we talked about with the most clay content. So again, further inland means bolder and fruitier versus on the coast, you're going to get more salinity and minerality. And then finally, O Rosal, this region forms the border with Portugal as it opens to the sea. So again, closer to the water, you're going to have more of that minerality and salinity. All right, that's our first region. That is Urias Baixas. Now still in northwest Spain, but we're going to head to Bierzo. Bierzo is a DO wine region. So again, remember, DO is Denominación de Origen. These are quality wines that are made from one of the 79 official wine regions within that first tier, DOP, right? So Bierzo is a DO wine region in the northwest of Castilla y León, Spain, close to the region's border with Galicia. So we're just heading over a little bit to the east from Galicia. Bierzo's climate is very different from Galicia, though. It is dry and hot. So we've moved inland, so we're not quite as green as we were before, but it does benefit from the cool breezes coming from Galicia and from the west. The main varieties that you will find in Bierzo for red, you will see Mencia. And I talk more about this wine, actually, in next week's podcast because it's one of those wines that I recommend you try that isn't as well-known. But the long short of it is that I think it's the perfect combo of a Syrah and Pinot Noir. So look forward to learning more about that next week. The white is a Godeo. And this is one of the top varieties in Spain, after Albariño, of course. It is a luscious, rich, nutty, spicy, salinity. It's like all these things that I love. I liken it to a really, really, really good Chardonnay. But I say that knowing that I like Chardonnay. So if you don't like Chardonnay... Don't hate on this wine yet, okay? It is really lovely, and it's just got all these unique things to it. You got to try Godea if you haven't yet. So region of uh, Bierzo wasn't on a lot of people's radars until 1998. This is when a famous Spanish winemaker, Alvaro Palacios, began buying ancient vineyards and establishing a tiny estate called Descendientes de José Palacios. And he did this with his nephew, Ricardo Perez. This quickly became one of the best estates in the region, and it really put Bierzo on the map. So you're going to find more of these wines. Now, I tend to find more red from Bierzo than I do white, but I think you can find both of them if you head to a local wine shop. You may even be able to find a Mencia at Total Wine or one of the big box stores. But again, definitely recommend. Super, super delicious from this region. And you'll learn more about Mencia in next week's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Vochill. When you're enjoying a glass of wine, temperature matters. And you don't need to be a wine expert to know this. You know this the minute you realize you forgot to put the bottle of wine in the fridge, and now you're stuck with lukewarm Sauvignon Blanc that is the opposite of refreshing. You know adding ice cubes will just water the wine down, but it seems like it's your only option. Not anymore. I want to introduce you to one of my favorite wine gadgets, Vochill. This gadget is as simple as it is elegant. It will keep wine perfectly chilled in your own wine glass. 
No more clunky metal or plastic tumblers or ice in your wine. While this gadget is an absolute must during the summer months, I don't enjoy wine without it from June to September. It's also incredibly useful for those days when you're craving a glass of white or rosé, but you don't want to wait for the bottle to chill in the fridge. Vochill offers a stemmed and stemless chiller in multiple colors, so you're bound to find one that's perfect for you. They also make the perfect gift. I should know, I got one for my mom at Christmas a couple years ago, and she loves it. Head to vochill.com, that's V-O-C-H-I-L-L dot com, to get your perfect wine chiller, and don't forget to use code CORKANDFIZZ for 15% off your order. This podcast is sponsored by the Cork Crew Virtual Wine Club. Interested in trying new wines, but not sure where to start? Or maybe you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you love the idea of tasting wine live with me. If that's you, come join my Cork Crew Virtual Wine Club and you'll get to sip wine with me twice a month while I help you find new favorite wines. The Cork Crew is not your ordinary wine club. This is a community of people who are passionate about exploring new flavors, learning about different wine styles, and having fun along the way. And the best part about this club, purchasing the wine is completely optional. Plus, all events are recorded, and you have access to the full library of recordings as a court crew member, so you can always catch up if you can't make it live. Oh, and did I mention it's virtual, which means you get to do all of this from the comfort of your sofa in your PJs. No need to worry about driving in crappy traffic, finding a designated driver, or spending an arm and a leg on a taxi. Want to give it a try without the commitment? You're in luck. Right now, I'm offering a free class pass to anybody who wants to try out the Court Crew Virtual Wine Tasting Club. With this pass, you'll be able to join a Court Crew event of your choosing. No strings attached. I don't need your credit card. I don't need you to sign up for anything. You'll be my guest. Simply head to corkandfizz.com slash free class pass to get your class pass and be one step closer to becoming a member of the best wine tasting club around, the Cork Crew. I can't wait to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, on to our next region, which is probably like the top region of Spain. Like when people think of Spanish wine, they think of this region. Any guesses? Yeah, it's Rioja. So this is often referred to as Spain's Bordeaux. Rioja is northeast Spain, has long been considered Spain's top wine region. So like Bordeaux, Rioja wines have traditionally been blends. And remember, a blend means that they use more than one grape variety. So for reds, you'll find Tempranillo usually accounts for the majority of the blend. So in general, Rioja is synonymous with Tempranillo. Those two just kind of go together. Now, there are three grapes that can be blended with the Tempranillo. You have Garnacha, which is also known as Grenache in France and other areas of the world. Mazuelo, which is also called Carignan in France and other areas of the world. And Graciano. Now, you can have it be a single varietal Tempranillo, so not a blend. It only has Tempranillo grapes. This has been more common as of recently but you're still going to find a lot of the blends. In terms of flavors, what would you expect from a red Rioja? You get a lot of cherry, sun-dried tomato. It has that nice, like, earthy note to it. And then some tobacco in there as well. So we're looking at some savory aromas. 
And they actually aged the wine in American oak, not French oak, mostly because they couldn't afford French oak at the time when they were making it. (laughs) So it became tradition to use American oak. And this American oak gives it a vanilla note, which is really unique and different to a lot of European red wines. Now, there are white wines. You will find white Riojas or Rioja Blanco. These are made mainly from a grape variety called Viura. It's simple and fresh. I found a quote somewhere. This is from a New York Times wine reporter. His name was Eric Asimov. And he said, it's basically Pinot Grigio with a brain. So (laughs) I don't mean to hate on Pinot Grigio, but that kind of clicked for me. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But these white Riojas, they can also be a single varietal of Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Tempranillo Blanc, and Verdejo. And of course, they can also be a blend of those grapes. And then they can also include any of the blending grapes of Garnacha Blanca, Malvagia, and Maturana Blanca. Now, each of these wines, both the red and the white Rioja, are known for aging incredibly well. If you have a well-made wine, and that's a really, really big if, so you have to keep an eye on that. As a red wine ages, you're going to develop these earthy, complex, dried fruit, nutty, chocolate, cocoa aromas and flavors. For whites, it's going to go more luscious, golden-hued. Remember, as a red ages, it gets lighter in color. As a white ages, it gets darker in color. And some of the oldest white wines actually look brown. Like, they look concerning, but they taste great if it's good quality. Right, so we got that golden-hued, it's more nutty, resiny, honeyed butterscotch. It's really balanced perfect, and then it has this vivid minerality to it as well. If you can find a well-aged white Rioja, be prepared for amazing things. <laughs> now, the danger is that there's a lot of low-quality, cheap wines coming from this region as well. And that's not to say they're bad, it just means that they're not meant for aging, right? So. And I mean, low quality does kind of mean a little bad, but I love getting budget-friendly bottles from this region. There's no reason not to do that. It's just if you're looking for this ageability, be sure to ask when you're buying that bottle. Head to a local wine shop, ask the experts, ask them which ones would do best aged. Now, one thing that can help you with picking out a bottle of wine and knowing whether it's age-worthy if you don't want to ask somebody is learning Rioja's classifications. So yes, 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 there was classifications for Spanish wine and there's specific ones for Rioja. And these are, I think they're actually very helpful for learning about like kind of what to expect from the wine. So there are four of them and I promise they're not that hard. So we're going to start with Joven. Joven, in, it's a Spanish word that basically just means young. There are no requirements to this. It's very likely a young Think pork pounder, quaffable wine, nothing crazy about it, but probably tasty. Next level up, you have Crianza. So this is a classification for both white and rosé and red wines, but they're going to be slightly different. So for whites and rosés, Crianza must be aged for a year and a half, and six months of that has to be in oak casks. And remember, again, these oak casks are American oak. Different types of oak give different types of flavor. American is more known for vanilla and coconut versus French oak, which I believe is more baking spices, like cinnamon, nutmeg. So Crianza for white and rosé, this must be aged for a year and a half, six months in oak casks. And for a red, it must be aged for at least two years, one of which is in oak casks. This tells you, you know, as compared to the Hoven, it has a little more age on it. 
It has been developed in the barrel for some amount of time. You might get a little flavor from the barrel aging. You might also get a little more smoothness. Next step is going to be Reserva. For white and rosés, this must be aged for two years. Again, six months in oak casks. For reds, it has to be aged for at least three years, one of which is in oak casks and six months in bottle. So keep in mind, for each of these, this means that the winemaker has to age the wine for that amount of time before they even release it. So our final one is Gran Reserva. These are the ones that are the most have the most ageability because along with these aging requirements, most likely the winemaker put their best grapes in there, right? Because they had to age it themselves first. They're going to give you the best in these wines. So for a white and rosé Gran Reserva, it must be aged for four years, one year in oak casks. And for reds, it has to be aged for at least five years, two of which in oak casks and the remaining three in the bottle. So there's your short introduction to Rioja. Like I said, we could do a whole episode on Rioja, and I'd be more than happy to do that. But just to give you a little intro to it, Rioja for a red is usually Tempranillo or a Tempranillo blend of some kind. And the white is most often made with that grape called Viura, which is very similar to a Pinot Grigio. But keep in mind that Rioja is wonderful aged. And if you can find good quality aged Rioja, I always jump at it. And it's honestly not that expensive. Like I've gotten bottles of Rioja that are over 20 years old and only paid like $50, which I mean, $50 is a lot for a bottle of wine, but not for 20 year old wine. So (laughs) take a look if you're interested in learning what aged wine tastes like. Look for Rioja. Now, three hours southwest by car from Rioja is a region called Ribera del Duero. This region is often described as a severe, dramatic land of rough mesas and rocky plateaus. It is also the medieval glory of Spain. This is because in the Middle Ages, this region is where Catholic kings fought the Moors. In the 15th century, the region was completely reconquered by the Spanish monarchs. Of course, up until the end of the 20th century, this region was primarily known for you guessed it, cheap wines. (laughs) Customers would often arrive at the bodega with a reusable container to simply like fill up. (laughs) It'd be like, um, you're like going to the gas station these days and like you, you keep your, uh, your big gulp or whatever those big plastic cups are called and you go fill up your slushy and then yeah, head on home. And, uh, that's what they did here, but with wine. (laughs) So in the 1980s, so 1980s were a good time. 1980s, 1990s were a good time for wine changing in Spain. There were two wineries that had great success, and this catapulted the region of Ribera del Duero to a new status. So these were Vega Sicilia and Pesquera. Now there's what's called the Mia de Oro, or the Golden Mile. This is where five of the best and most successful wineries and estates in Spain are all located along Castilla's N22 highway in Ribera del Duero. Interestingly enough, though, after receiving that DO designation, remember that's just kind of like here, that is in the first tier, but it's like the base of the first tier. Ribera del Duero earned that in 1982, and it was approved. And then in 2008, for the Denominación de Origen Calificada status, this is like the top level, you've only got the two regions that are part of that, that is Rioja and Priorat. Ribera del Duero never pursued the acquisition of this classification. So it just remains a single DO appellation. Doesn't mean the wine isn't any good. The winery, the winemakers, and the people of that region just never chose to go after that qualification. In terms of wine, they do make a white wine called La Ribera Blanca, but it is far less common than, like, for example, the Rioja Blanco. 
It's made from a grape called Albio Mayor, but again, you're not going to see it a whole lot. Primarily from Ribera del Duero, you're going to find red wines. And these are also Tempranillo, but they're from a specific clone called Tinto Fino. So they say it's actually a different type of Tempranillo than the one that is grown in Rioja. And if you're saying like clone, what, what the heck do you mean by clone, Haley? So remember a clone is where differentiations exist along the same grape variety. They have the same genetic makeup, but they are usually vines that are grafted onto different rootstocks. So it's slightly different, but not different enough to be a different grape variety. So these are both Tempranillo, but you are going to see some differences in these vines, even though they're both Tempranillo. Hopefully that kind of makes some sense. The vines in Ribeiro de Duero, so the things that make them unique, one, they protrude no more than a foot or two out of the earth. Traditionally, they plant without wire, trellis, or posts. Many of these vines are 30 to 50 years old or older, and these are also considered to have that clonal difference from vines in Rioja again. So a lot of people believe that they've adapted after centuries, so they have smaller berries and tougher skin, and that's likely because it's a warmer, hotter region in Ribera del Duero. This leads to a more powerful wine. Now, they also have aging classifications here, but they are just for the red wines. So remember in Rioja, that was both for the white, rosé, and red. Here in Ribera del Duero, they are just for the red. They are still aged in American oak. So a Crianza, two years of aging, one in an oak cask. Reserva, three years of aging, one in oak, remaining two in bottle. And finally, Gran Reserva, five years, two in oak, Korean bottle. You don't need to know those numbers in order for you to just remember that, you know, the classification system for Rioja starts at Joven, and then for both Rioja and Ribera del Duero, your next level up is Crianza, Reserva, and at the very top is your Gran Reserva. That's what's important to remember. Okay, last region that we are going to talk about is Priorat. So we are heading back up to northwest Spain to the region of Catalonia, Right on the coast next to France, you will find Priorat. This is a mountainous terrain. It is dominated by a distinctive stony black slate soil called Licorella, which is conducive for growing primarily red wines. This is the only region besides Rioja to boast the Spain's top classification, the DOCA or DOQ in Catalan. Again, Catalan is a different language, similar to remember when we talked about in Galicia, they have the Galician language. In uh, Catalonia, they have the Catalan language. You can expect really incredibly intense, inky, full-bodied, and powerful wines. And these are made from primarily a few grape varieties, all right? So you have a Carinera, and I've had such a hard time saying that. So if somebody knows a better way to say that, Carinera. It's a struggle with that one. I looked it up a few times and it just doesn't roll off my tongue very well. Carinena. This is a native Spanish grape. It is known as Mazuelo in Rioja. And remember, again, that Mazuelo is Carignan in France. So maybe I just never call it by the Catalan or the Priorat version. And we'll just call it Mazuelo or Carignan. This contributes to intensity, depth, and structure. And then you have the second grape that is made out of is Garnacha, right? And we're very familiar with that grape. That is Grenache in France. It is a renowned red grape of Priorat. It contributes to richness, juiciness, body, and density, which is so interesting saying that because Garnacha, which is also known as Grenache, Grenache can also be considered like a Pinot Noir similar grape variety. 
but it totally depends on where it's grown. So here in Priorat, it's rich, juicy, intense, whereas in some places of Australia, it's kind of considered like the Pinot Noir of Australia, where it's lighter bodied, not as intense. So totally depends on how you're making that wine. Sorry, I got off on a tangent there, but I just think it's so cool. So again, your Priorat reds, they're going to be 60 to 90% of those two varietals. So the Carignana, that Haley cannot say, <laughs> uh, which is also called Mazuelo or Carignan. And then the second one is Garnacha, also called Grenache. Then they have some blending grapes. You have Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, and Tempranillo. And this wine, again, it's super thick, almost like a port-like texture. Like it's it's really like... Not quite syrupy, but it is full-bodied. It is loaded with super ripe blackberry fruit, chocolate, licorice flavors. And site and vintage are incredibly important here. So where the grapes are grown and what the year was like in terms of weather. So a poor site in a hot year can produce really aggressive, unbroachable wines. I feel like it's like the best way to say it. Versus like a good site. Now, a good site in a hot year, also going to be really intense, but it's going to be a good site, right? So they're going to know what to do with it and they're going to grow well. But a good site in a good year where it's not too hot, that is what you're going to want to reach for. Now, again, they do have a classification system here. What I think is really cool about this classification system is that it's unique in that it incorporates the age of the vineyards. So remember when we were talking about Rioja and Ribera del Duero? Those were primarily based off how long you aged the wine. Here in Priorat, they care about, yes, how long you age the wine, but also how old are the vineyards. So that's what I wrote down here um, to share with you because I just thought it was super cool. So there are, let's see, five classification systems in different levels in the Priorat classification system. So you have just the basic DOQ Priorat. So if it's just, if your bottle is just labeled Priorat, which is P-R-I-O-R-A-T, this is the basic regional wine produced from grapes anywhere within Priorat. Then you have Vitevia. This is equivalent to Burgundy Village wines. So these are like selected areas and if yours is Vidavia, it'll likely say the name of the like the village or the area as well. But you'll know that all the grapes came from that area. Next, we have Videpartage. The wines are from well-known places or areas historically respected. There are about 450 of these. And 90% of the vineyards are over 15 years old. Then you have Viña Clasificada. These are single vineyard wines, so the grapes have to come from just this one vineyard. And 80% of the vineyards must be 20 plus years old. So you can use new vineyards in there, but only for 20% of the grapes. And finally, Gran Viña Clasificada. This is your very top. It's a single vineyard Grand Cruz. These are 90% Granacha and or Carignana. And 80% of the vineyard must be 35 plus years old. Plus, the remaining 20% has to be at least 10 years old, or the vineyard has to be at least 10 years old. So there's a lot of, you know, requirements here on this one, and you're guaranteed some really good quality grapes, which are going to turn into a really great quality wine. And note one difference here from Rioja and Ribeiro del Duero, along with obviously the grape varieties, everything is aged in French oak rather than American oak. 
All right, there you go. That is your just basic intro to five popular regions within Spain. So as a quick reminder, we went through Rias Baixas. This is uh, a region that is primarily making Albariño, which is similar to Sauvignon Blanc, but a little, little more salty and ocean-like rather than herbaceous. Then you have Bierzo. Bierzo makes red and white wines. The red is going to be Mencia, a perfect combo of Syrah and Pinot Noir. And a white is going to be a Godeo, the best Chardonnay you've ever had, even if you don't like Chardonnay, it is the best Chardonnay you've ever had. Then you have Rioja and Ribera del Duero. Both these make Tempranillo-based wines, but again, remember, they are from different clones. They're going to be different. The Ribera del Duero, typically more powerful. Rioja, a little more subdued. Not saying that is a bad thing. I love Rioja. And finally, Priorat. This is going to be your big, inky, powerful Crainenia that Haley I cannot say, which is also Mazuelo or Cagnon in France. And then Garnacha as well. So you're going to have, to, or it could be either or of those, I should say. And these, again, super powerful, thick, almost port-like. So even more powerful than that Ribera del Duero. All right. And those are the five regions. Let me know what Spanish wine are you excited to try now that you've listened to this. Be sure to tag me on Instagram if you do grab a bottle or send me an email, Haley at corkandfizz.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cork and Fizz Guide to Wine podcast. If you loved it as much as I did, I would sure appreciate it if you could take a quick second, rate it, leave a review, share it with a friend. You know how this works. Take a little screenshot or press the little share button. Go send it to somebody that you think would find learning about Spanish wine fun. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I release a new episode every Wednesday. In next week's episode, I'll be sharing four lesser known wines that I love and I think you should try. And remember, one of those is going to be Mencia. Thanks again for listening. And as a thank you, I'd like to share my free shopping guide, 15 wines under $15. Simply head to my website, corkandfizz.com, scroll down to the bottom, and join my mailing list. Cheers!